Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. Good morning on this first Monday of January 2021, the year of the Lord. That's right. 2021, the year of the Lord. So no matter what else it may be, this is the day the Lord has made. And this is the year of our Lord, 2021. Just consider for a moment that all of human history, the calendar that is used the world over, hangs on the hinge of the advent of Jesus Christ. So we have just celebrated his first advent, the inauguration of the kingdom of God on earth through the incarnation of his son, Jesus. All of human history hangs on the hinge of the advent of Jesus Christ. So no matter what else 2020 may have been, and no matter what else 2021 may yet be, They are each and both the year of the Lord, the year of the Lord. So when all around us is madness, I want you to remember this. This is the year of the Lord, not just any Lord, the Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So where in the word are you today? Before we head to the headlines of the day, let us turn to the Lord. I'd like to lift up Colossians chapter 2, the first 15 verses. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you've been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Be mindful of these things. Be in the Word of God in this new year. Let the Word of God be in you, that you might be in the world that God so loves as an agent of His grace and an ambassador of His kingdom. All right, the uh, death toll from COVID here in the United States has climbed past 350,000. We're going to talk with Dr. Zach Jenkins about all things COVID up next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. It's good to have you back again. Oh, hey, All right, joining me again today on this Monday morning is Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. Uh, Zach, welcome back. Good morning. Good morning. All right, um, all things COVID. Um, let's talk about. Oh, I don't know. We're we're out of school again. Um, we're doing school all virtual for the next couple of weeks. There has been. A rise in cases in the state where I live. Um, hospitals are pretty overwhelmed. Talk with us a little bit about what's going on with the numbers across the country. Uh, well, throughout December, the numbers have continued to climb as far as hospitalizations go. And and I know we're seeing new cases rise. I think for me, and, and this is definitely my bias, my, my focus is very much on what is this doing to our hospital systems? What is this doing to our medical resources? Um, so as we're seeing those numbers rise, our concern right now is what's going to be happening with our ICU beds. Um, so we're seeing the percentage of ICU beds occupied by COVID-positive patients. It's increased pretty significantly. Uh, and I, I think from the data, it's it's definitely leaning towards this idea that's going to continue probably through February where it will probably peak. Oh, see, that's um, that's a longer or later timeline than I was hoping to hear. So yeah. I'm so I mean like everybody else and I'm sure like you right I'm 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 ready to be done with this but I recognize that vigilance uh continued vigilance is important until um you know until a sufficient number of people are vaccinated. Yeah exactly and, and I think an interesting thing to kind of correlate with that is you know we had the flu that is just starting to circulate a little bit and we haven't seen a large number of cases yet. I know I saw my first flu case about 2 weeks ago. And it was actually in a COVID-positive patient, unfortunately. Mm. Um, I, there are a lot of other seasonal respiratory viruses that normally would hit this time of year, but flu cases and certainly those other respiratory cases are down pretty considerably. I, I've looked at our local data, and that holds true as well uh, when we've been testing and looking for that information. So I think the things we've been doing to fight COVID have actually delayed the spread of those other viruses. So um, let's... Um... Let's talk about the new the new strain or new strains, um, and and then um, after a brief break, we'll we'll talk about vaccine news because I know there's a lot of that as well. Um, what what's your level of concern related to the new strain or strains and its likely um, effect on kids? Because this is kind of a a different issue than we've been facing to this point. So I I think it's a good question. Um, it's important to recognize because there's been a lot of buzz that really we've had lots of strains of COVID circulating around since the start. Uh, There's some thoughts that the first strains we saw in the U.S. were probably more deadly than what we're seeing right now. And typically when we see mutant strains happen, um, the more deadly it is, the faster it fizzles out, just because it's not as easy for the virus to kind of move through a population that way. And that's its primary goal is just to kind of circulate. 
Um, when it comes to these new strains, there's one other United Kingdom, and that one has been found to be about 70, 70% more contagious than the regular COVID variant we've seen a lot in the U.S. Um, and in other parts of the world. And some data is actually indicating that we've had it in the U.S. here for some time, certainly since uh, the late spring. Colorado, I think, is where they've identified cases of this particular strain. Um, we see it actually infecting kids more. And so the concern there is, we've, as we've looked at children, they haven't necessarily been as impacted by COVID thus far. Um, and they certainly don't seem to be big carriers. But when it comes to this new strain, it's possible it could spread through uh, school systems a little bit more readily. Uh, that being said, it doesn't seem like it's posing any greater risk to their health overall than the, than the other COVID variants we've seen. Uh, there's a Brazilian strain as well, which seems to be a little bit more deadly, but it's not as concerning uh, because we're not really thinking it's going to be, make much movement through the population. All right, I'm talking with Dr. Zach Jenkins. You can follow him on Twitter at FarmDHiker, farm spelled like the beginning of the word pharmacy. Uh, he and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to talk about all things COVID vaccine. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is amazing grace. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. You can follow him on Twitter at farm, P-H-A-R-M-D, hiker. Um, Zach, let's talk about vaccines. Uh, Britain has begun, begun distributing um, uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, we have vaccine distribution here across the United States that uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci seems to be pretty uh, excited about the uptick. He says, I see some glimmer of hope after 1.5 million doses were administered in the previous 72 hours, an average of about a half a million doses a day, um, said that brings us to a total of about 4 million. And he thinks that um, the the prospects of having 100 million doses uh, distributed in the first 100 days of the next presidency or the next presidential term um, is not unreasonable. Talk with us about vaccines. Oh, there's quite a bit to cover with vaccines. Um, specifically, the the UK they they did actually authorize the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine. In the US, it looks like April, um, according to the Trump administration, is likely when we'll see that vaccine maybe make its way to the FDA. Uh, we do have some more regulatory hurdles in place for that. Um, I think the interesting thing about the UK is that they've actually revised some of their vaccine uh, policies. So what they're going to be doing is mixing and matching vaccines. Um, and then delaying administration of second doses. And so there's a lot of controversy related to that. So it's going to let them hit more people with vaccines, so to speak. But the the challenge is we don't have data to say, like, what happens when you combine vaccines from a safety standpoint, but more importantly, from an efficacy standpoint, because we do think they're pretty safe overall. But we don't know, like, does it confer the same level of immunity? Um we also don't know what would happen if there's a logistical issue. Like, let's say a lot of the vaccines have to be recalled and the person got one vaccine versus another. So it, it's been uh, met with a lot of criticism for that reason. Uh, delaying vaccines is, is a bit of an issue, too, because when you kind of stave off that second dose, what you can really see is uh, potentially people not having that full effect of both vaccines. If you look at the Pfizer vaccine, for example, we know that you only hit that 94% mark after the second dose. Prior to that, it's about 80%. Um, so a lot of controversy from that angle. It is encouraging to see what we're doing in the U.S. as far as distribution of vaccines go. Um, but there, it's kind of like uh, in some locations not being 
taken as readily. In Ohio, for example, Governor DeWine uh, just put out an announcement that about 60% of nursing home workers have not necessarily bought into taking a vaccine yet. Uh, so when we think about what that means in the long run, we're, we're distributing these vaccines to these areas, hoping people are going to get them. But there are delays then if people refuse it and it's just like sitting around on, on a shelf gathering dust. Um, and and yet there are other people who um, very much like to get it, like, you know, hey, let, put my put my name in line or however that is working in various communities across the country. So uh, there's not a way for them to sort of like accelerate how fast they get it it just they just like this is the part i don't understand this is the distribution part i don't understand if if the person in front of me in line doesn't want it then as soon as they step out of line i ought to be able to get it but that's not how this is working yeah i I mean that would be the ideal situation the unfortunate reality is is we're trying to trying to get people access to the vaccine Um, what happens is it sits around and then has to be redistributed if someone doesn't take that so Mm. there there are delays that kind of come from that that angle Interesting. Interesting. All right. Um, new antibody treatment. I, I know nothing about this. <laughs> yeah. So um, out, out of the UK, again, there, there's some more news related to this. So there's a new antibody treatment they've been working on. It has not been approved for, for formal use, but it's being tested right now. Um, and the, the hope is that actually when people come in with COVID, you can administer this right away. And according to them, in their words, it can confer instant immunity, which is a pretty uh, lofty goal, and I hope it does prove true. Um, it, it is certainly helpful for people that maybe could not be vaccinated. I, I think the challenge is when you compare that to a vaccine, it's it's very, really similar principle. You're really just kind of making antibodies. In this case, we're providing someone with an antibody we've created versus one that your body is naturally creating via a vaccine. Um, the cost associated with that is pretty substantial. These things are typically hard to manufacture. And so I don't know what that's going to mean in the grand scheme of things if indeed this does prove useful, which I hope it does. Hmm. All right, Zach, anything else um, that you want to cover today? You know, I I think uh, related to our our first topic, we were kind of talking about what's happening maybe with hospitalizations. There's a secondary thing that doesn't get discussed a lot, and that's readmissions. Hmm. And what we're seeing is about 1 in 11 people are being readmitted with COVID after they've had it, or or COVID complications is probably a better way to put that. So when we think about occupying hospital space, that's actually a contributing factor there. Uh, So as this spreads further, if you look at a population of about, uh, let's say 1.1 million people, which I know we've had daily new cases in excess of that, about 20% of that is going to be hospitalized based on the data. And then of those one in 11, which would turn out to be about 200 and some thousand, would end up requiring a hospital bed of some sort. Uh, so you can kind of see what that means in the grand scheme of things as this continues to unfold. So when they're, when a person is readmitted, they, they're, they're no longer active. Okay, so explain this part to me. Mm-hmm. Most of the people, the overwhelming majority of people who I know who have contracted COVID have gotten in o- over it very quickly. And, you know, so, you know, they're within 10 days, they supposedly are able to be back in contact with other people. These these people who are experiencing much longer term effects and much more severe effects um, and who are being hospitalized and then are being readmitted. Do they still have covid or they're just dealing with the effects of covid on their body? So it's, it's a bit of a mixed bag. I would say most of them, uh, based on my, my experience, as well as the data are dealing with complications from COVID. 
there are some that seem to be holding on to COVID longer than they should be. Um, so we've had some cases in my hospital, for example, that have been there for several weeks and are still testing COVID positive and still having some of those issues. And we can neither rule COVID in or out because they keep testing positive and kind of have the same presentation. But there are a lot of other people, um, my brother-in-law is a good example, who have complications like myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart. Uh, so, so those are the kinds of things that we're typically seeing. We're seeing a lot of those things like strokes, clots, um, inflammation that can really bring people back in. Yeah, it's um, it's it's really people's experience of this is really really diverse. Um, mm-hmm. Zach, thank you so much as always um, for joining us. I, you know, I I'm looking forward to the. It's terrible to say, but I'm looking forward to the <laughs> the day and the week and the month when we don't have to talk anymore because we're over this. Me too. Isn't that awful? Isn't that awful? Okay. One of my goals for 2021 is to get to the end of our conversation. Amen? Amen. (laughs) Thank you so much. We'll be right back. All right. Let's cover. uh, We got a couple of minutes here. Let's cover a, a few headlines that we weren't otherwise going to get to. Uh, In case you missed it, um, Britain has officially left the EU. They celebrated that uh, when Big Ben struck 11 p.m. on New Year's Eve. It marked Britain's official exit from the European Union. Yes, it was a turbulent 11-month transition, but the two sides did conclude with a trade deal on Christmas Eve, ensuring that Britain and the, uh, the rest of the nations in the European Union, now known as the bloc, would uh, continue to buy and sell goods without quotas or tariffs. So, that's a um, that's a big deal. Uh, but despite that free trade deal, I think it's um, important for us to recognize companies here in the United States and around the world are actually bracing for new export processes, including border checks and all kinds of customs dec- declarations that um, have not been required for the last number of years. Sticking with Britain here for just a moment, a British judge has denied the United States request to extradite WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange citing the high risk of suicide were he to be um, uh, extradited to U.S. custody. So that's going to be an unfolding story. The United States is certainly going to appeal that. Uh, for those of you who have missed this, President Trump called the Georgia Secretary of State on Saturday and pressured him to find enough votes to change the outcome of uh, of the election results in that state. Um, you can and you should listen to the audio of the call. It's widely available um, and you should consider it. I mean, if you're a person who wants to actually know the truth of what's going on, you should listen to the audio of the president of the United States calling the secretary of state of the state of Georgia, uh, a person for whom he campaigned for Trump campaigned for um, Raffensperger uh, when he ran for this office. And as Christians, you also need to know and recognize um, that the Raffensperger's are Christians, too. Real God-fearing, Bible-believing, church-going, praying disciples of Jesus— they're also parents and grandparents. In fact, they, um, they've lost a son to a lifelong struggle, struggle with addiction. So before you participate in any level of criticism of this man, um, know what you're talking about and know who you're talking about. And pray that the Lord would keep you from temptation and deliver you from evil in all of its forms. There are appropriate ways to participate in political discourse. Um, and there are inappropriate ways. And uh, it is a misrepresentation of Christ for us to be attacking other Christians who are serving in public office 
Um, and so let me just encourage you to listen to the audio um, and consider what is being um, articulated and said. Nancy Pelosi was reelected to another two-year term as the Speaker of the House of Representatives. And here's some news. Um, when the 117th Congress opened, the prayer, the opening prayer, concluded not only with an amen, but an ah woman. Yes, we are going to have to talk about that, but it's going to have to hold till till uh, till later. All right, uh, next up, I've got David French from the Dispatch. We'll be right back. Dealing with a teen whose behavior is inappropriate and whose life is spinning out of control takes a parent who's focused. I mean, focused like a laser. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Your teen will try and distract you by acting out, but don't be fooled. There's something else going on beneath the surface. As a mom or dad, it's your job to look beyond the behavior to the source of rebellion. Perhaps your child is grieving the loss of a relationship or dream. What's happening on the outside can give us clues to the real pain on the inside. So as much as your teen's behavior is rocking your world, take time to carefully study what's really going on. Once you identify the source, the healing can begin. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Dispatch. You can find him at thedispatch.com. We talked to we we talked to him a couple of times last year. Love his book. Um, Want to encourage you to read it as well as follow what he's writing at the Dispatch. Um, David, welcome back. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right. So first things first. Tell us about Lila. <laughs> Lila is about the cutest baby in in America. <laughs> She's. My first grandchild, she is just um, back from a stay in the NICU after she was born. She was, uh, I would say, about five or ten minutes after she was born, she was whisked away for surgery. And it went better than anyone had reason to expect. And so we were warned that there might be a months-long stay in the NICU. Instead, she was there for about two and a half weeks and just came home on New Year's Eve. And uh, we've been taking care of her with my daughter and son-in-law, and she's been doing great. So we're very, very grateful to God for that. So we just wanted to celebrate that with you. Celebrate, first of yes. all, this this new life. And um, your, your, you and Nancy's lives, let's trust me, will now utterly be transformed by uh, the entrance into your family of this new person. I got to tell you, it changes everything. Oh, just... I t- yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it's, rem- it's rem- uh, reminding me of many years ago when we had our newborn daughter and how much it was hard and wonderful at the same time. And, and there are, my uh, daughter and son-in-law will be staying with us for several weeks as they do a lot of very frequent doctor visits. And it's hard and wonderful at the same time. It's, it's, just, it's just remarkable. It's, uh, we love it. Well, just drink it up, soak it up. I just, uh, I'm, they're blessed to be with you. And we, we count Lila as a blessing and look forward to all that God intends to do um, in and through her in, you know, in a long life yet to come. So that's just awesome. Okay. So tell us about, um, first of all, I did not know that you served for a period of time as a youth pastor. Um, (laughs) Now we have a whole nother subject matter. Tell us about Ted Lasso. 
Yes. Well, this this show is one of the few breaths of fresh air in 2020. And I wrote about it this Sunday because there's this moment in it. It's really interesting. It's a show that kind of kind of set the Internet on fire uh, several weeks ago as people sort of slowly discovered it and then another person and another person. And it's just a show that when you look at the trailer for it, it's on Apple TV. It looks kind of simple and funny. And it's it's uh, the conceit is that there is a owner of a Premier League soccer team in in England who's trying to destroy the team as vengeance for her uh, for to her uh, against her ex-husband because her ex-husband loved the team so much. And to destroy the team, she hires an American football coach to coach an English soccer team. <laughs> and this American football coach is played by Jason Sudeikis as the name Ted Lasso. And it sounds just kind of silly and trite, you know, like the 1989 movie Major League. It's the same sort of conceit to the movie. But it is remarkably more than that. It's it's a countercultural masterpiece about understanding and forgiving people while also being funny, warning it's got some crude language, but it's while also very funny, it's a real countercultural masterpiece about forgiveness. And I, when I watched it for the first time, and we've now watched through the whole series twice, uh, there was a moment that, that left tears in my eyes. I don't want to spoil it, but it's really remarkable. And I've, I've had several people ever since I wrote about it yesterday that have already started binging it and started sending me text messages and messages saying, wow, you were right. <laughs> it's a really amazing. Yeah. So I wanted to lift that up because um, you and I talk about political headlines. We like to talk about political headlines, but you're not a flat Stanley. Like, right. You got a lot going on. Um, there's uh, yeah, there's there's a, there's real life and there's um, and there's real entertainment. You're um, yeah, you're not you're not flat. So I appreciate that. OK, so <laughs> let's make a pivot here to some uh, more more of our standard fare for what we normally talk about in our conversations. Um, I'm aware there were marches yesterday that will go on today as well in Minneapolis to protest the killing um, of a black man by police last week. Um, in mm-hmm. L.A., there are protests um, that are all that all seem to me to be covid related of one variety or another in Atlanta um, in anticipation of tomorrow's uh, Senate runoff. Um, there are marches at the Capitol there in Washington, D.C., in anticipation of tomorrow's vote by a joint session of Congress. There are marches. The people of America are restless and they are taken yeah. to the streets um, over a, frankly, pretty diverse and increasing litany of frustrations. Um, we don't have time to cover them all, but let's touch on a few. So what what's going on? It, it, take the temperature of America. Well, you know, I think that a lot of people thought as 2020 ended or hoped that as 2020 ended, we could turn the page and we're not turning the page yet. Uh, this is going to be, you know, you highlighted what's what's kind of on the agenda for this week. This is going to be a very tense week in this country. We have very low degrees of trust. We have very high degrees of polarization. We have people who are stoking mistrust and distrust in this country and if you just look at Monday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of this week, you've got, as you said, uh, we're going to have a we're going to have protests and a big rally in in Georgia, a Trump rally in Georgia in the aftermath of the Trump tape uh, where he was trying to pressure Georgia election officials um, to reverse the outcome of the Georgia presidential election. There's going to be the Georgia Senate pr- uh, runoff and then there's going to be the counting of the electors in Washington, and that's going to be. There's a series of protests planned. 
look, we're in a we're in a time period in American history where there's an enormous amount of animosity between red and blue. And we have a leader class in this country that is stoking that animosity between red and blue. You know, when it comes to the election, for example, you have politicians and you have, um, in you know, conservative celebrities who are uh, raising questions about the election outcome and then saying, hey, we need to look in more to it because people don't trust the election outcome. Well, people don't trust the election outcome because you were stoking mistrust in the election outcome. So we have a lot of people who are have a real vested interest, sadly, in, in making Americans despise each other. And this is this is what's happening in this country right now. And despising each other is um, there's no good end to that. Um, no. I mean, I think that learning to learning to raise the concerns that we have in a way that is, you know, I'm going to use the term dispassionate in in a in a way that doesn't suggest I'm not passionate about something. But I can raise my concerns in a way that are dispassionate um, that allows for the other person to bring their concerns to the table as well. Or I can just absolutely blast them. And that's not helpful. Right. Well, you know, there's a concept called fighting ideas and not people. In other words, taking on ideas. And the ideas that are at stake in any given American election are serious and they're important. But, you know, what we're in the grips of right now is something called negative partisanship. And what negative partisanship is, it's when you uh, vote, say, Republican or you are Republican, not because you love Republican ideas, but so much as you really dislike Democratic ideas or Democrats themselves. Or you're a, a Democrat, not so much because you love Democratic ideas, but because you dislike Republicans or Republican ideas. And the and the polling on this is overwhelming that a, your average Democrat strongly or somewhat dislikes your average Republican, and your average Republican strongly or somewhat dislikes your average Democrat. And and this is personal now. It, it is increasingly personal, not just, hey, I want taxes at one level and you want taxes at a different level, or I think our foreign policy should emphasize Europe, or I think our foreign policy should emphasize Asia. This is This is very, very personal. And this is why elections are growing more contentious. This is why uh, one of the reasons why um, people are reflexively distrusting election outcomes that don't comport with their expectations. It's because they don't just believe that the other side is wrong on ideas. They believe that the other side is evil and capable of anything. And that, as you said, has no good end. Yeah. All right. I'm talking with David French. You can find everything that he's writing at the dispatch dot com. Um, particularly look there for the French press. David and I are going to continue this conversation in just a moment. Um, I'm going to ask him how an angry cheerleader might help us cancel <laughs> cancel culture. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continue my conversation with David French. You can find him at thedispatch.com. David, um, you, um, as an attorney, you follow actually all kinds of things out there that the rest of us are not following. So talk (laughs) with us about um, this student, this high school student, this cheerleader in Pennsylvania and why we should know um, about her. And as a part of this, remind us what cancel culture is. Yeah. So cancel culture, I mean, it's a even the definition is contentious, but essentially what it is, it's when somebody is um, the focus of maybe a public shame campaign or a social media mobbing because they've said something that a lot of folks find offensive. 
and they try to cancel them in the sense of get them fired, get them deplatformed from giving a speech, get them disinvited from an event. In other words, trying to to uh, see that an employer or government will punish them in some way for their speech. And this is something that a lot of folks who sort of spend time online are pretty familiar with. And it happens to people on the right. It happens to people on the left. And it's created this real fear in among, uh, amongst an awful lot of people when they speak. And there's a fascinating case going up to the Supreme Court that I, as I said, could help cancel cancel culture. Because the question is, uh, one of the interesting legal questions in constitutional law is when can the government censor either a student in a public school or a public employer employee who, for their speech? And there's a, a case involving a cheerleader who was not who was cut from the varsity squad and sent back to JV, who Snapchatted uh, a pretty profane <laughs> series of, of statements. That's we why cannot read Amy. her Snapchat on air because the government does tell us that there are some things we cannot say. <laughs> right. So she vented uh, after she was cut from the cheerleading team uh, to Snapchat to her friends on Snapchat. One of those friends took a screenshot of what she said and showed it to a cheerleading coach, and the cheerleader was kicked off the team. Now, there's a couple of things about this. One is she did that when she was not in school. She did that um, off of school grounds. She did that not with school property. That was her own phone. In other words, this was a kid acting like a kid off of school grounds. And it has raised a really important question, which is how much control does the government have over the speech of a student when the student isn't at school? And it's a very interesting question, and it's one that a lot of courts in the U.S. have held that the government has a pretty high degree of control over student speech, even when students are off campus. And so this is something that has really allowed an awful lot of people to troll through people's social media, to look through their Instagram, to look through, well, kids don't use Facebook anymore, but Snapchat and get kids punished for things that they say that, you know, in, in an area of life that has traditionally been the realm of parents, where parents control kids and not uh, not schools controlling kids. And the reason why I say that this could help cancel, cancel culture is if you stuff government back into its box where it has control, more control at school and not out of school, uh, you take away the ability of government to punish people for the things that they say. And and I think it's an important move to stuff government back into its box. It's not defending what that cheerleader said. It's saying, hey, you know who has to, who should deal with what that cheerleader says when that cheerleader is not at school? Mom and dad. Mom and dad are in control of their kids when their kids are not at school and not the government. And I thought it's a fascinating case that could help st sort of stuff government back into its box. So there's another side of this um, that I that I want to lift up to you as well. As Christians, you know, we talk about the way we appropriately represent or misrepresent Jesus as right. as image bearers of God. How we represent or misrepresent Him in the culture today. I'm I am I harp on this a lot, David, on my show. Like I want listeners to be walking their faith out into the world that God so loves in ways that Jesus would recognize as consistent with himself, like in ways right. that honor Jesus. So yes. um, this caught my attention in your post that that the school district felt that this um, that this young woman's snap 
violated a school rule requiring student athletes to, quote, conduct themselves in such a way that the image of the school district would not be tarnished in any manner. I just, I, I, can we get that like on, I don't know, something that we could like, now, as soon as I say tattoo, then I'm, people are going to freak out that I'm suggesting we get, I'm not suggesting we get tattoos. I'm using this as, okay. That, that like Christians could be held accountable by their local congregations to conduct themselves in such a way that the image of Jesus would not be tarnished in any manner. Like, let's do that. <laughs> no, I I completely agree that this is a way. And, and, you know, look, I mean, we have a guidebook for how to do this. I mean, I, I frequently refer to Micah 6.8. What does the Lord require of you, O man? What is good? It's to act justly, to seek. Uh, it's to love mercy and to walk humbly with the Lord your God. And and I think that, you know, that those three interlocking responsibilities of Micah 6.8, if we ha- kept those front of mind, oh my goodness, we would be so much better off as a body of Christ in this culture. But, you know, it's funny, um, when you when I, when I look at that and I think of that as a private responsibility of Christians and also of parents who are raising Christian kids, uh, I think one thing, when I, when I see those words, when the government is saying you can't do anything that, you know, would bring sort of dishonor to this government institution, then I'm thinking, uh, that's... That's not what the the role of government isn't that expansive in our lives, and so it's uh, it's really interesting. There is a very big def- difference between wrong, a way a person should or should not act morally, and and unlawful, the way the law should control a person's speech or behavior, and and uh, we often get those two things confused. and And one of the things I thought was really uh, excellent, going back to that cheerleader case, was how the judge in the case. Uh, sort of said, hey, wait, we're, we each belong in our separate spheres, and there's the sphere where parents um, and where family uh, has its uh, arena of operation in our lives. And I, I thought that was a really sort of welcoming distinction that you don't often see um, when, you know, when in, in as many cases as you might like. So um, later today, I'm going to talk with um Carl Truman about his new book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Yes. If you if you haven't read it, let okay, I'm I'm gonna commend it to you because first of all, I'd love to be able to talk with you about it. And it's it's really rich. So have you read it by any chance? I have not. I okay. it's on the so, list, but it yeah, is on, so, it's definitely on the list. Well, all right. So um I think we've we, we have some copies to give away today, and I think that we should just put your name uh, in, in the list of people <laughs> who should get one. Because it's it, – so uh, rarely do I read a book that I think to myself, this is actually going to help us better understand how the world is really working right now and then mm-hmm. how we find ourselves in it as Christians. And um, I think you're always trying to do that every day at the dispatch, like at the French press. I think that's what you're trying to help us do is to rightly see ourselves in 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 the context of a world that has really turned most things that we hold valuable upside down. Right. And so I hope I'm reading you right when I say that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, one of the so, things that I try to do is with Christians, political engagement isn't just a matter of issues. It's mm-hmm. a matter of method. It's the way in which we interact with the world, not just the issues that we focus on as we interact with the world. And I think a lot of times we forget that. We think as long as somebody is 
you know, agreeing with us on, on an, a particular issue, say that they are for religious liberty, the way in which they interact with the world is not that meaningful so long as they agree with us on the issues. And I think that's just fundamentally wrong. Well, that's the basic understanding of political engagement. It is how I, as a person, engage with other people. Like that is the most primary level of political engagement. No, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's funny. A lot of times Christians who um, they have a point of view that a very well-developed point of view of what it say it means to be a Christian as a parent, a Christian as a husband or a wife, a Christian as a member of a business. For example, if your business is in crisis, nobody uh, you, there's I've, I've not yet met a Christian businessman. who says, well, my business is in crisis. I need to hire somebody who will commit fraud on my behalf to save my business and say, well, I'm not committing fraud. I've just hired somebody to commit fraud, and that makes my business fine. And yet in politics, what we do all the time are knowingly hiring people. That's what our vote does. It hires people, knowingly hiring people that will do things that we know are wrong on our behalf for the greater good. And and that's something that I have found incredibly distressing. It's as if part of our fundamental theology and idea of who we are as people in the body of Christ with politics, it just kind of falls by the wayside. And people say, well, politics is tough. Politics ain't beanbag or whatever phrase you want to use. Well, business is tough. Um, Being a parent is tough. Every Mm -hmm. aspect of life is tough. But we don't sort of say, well, it's tough. So we have to shed some of these fundamental requirements about how we interact with the world. And, you know, if we're not to hate our enemies, instead to love our enemies, we don't uh, we don't keep that command by hiring someone to hate our enemies on our behalf. <laughs> and so, yeah, there there is a we have a, a woefully deficient political theology in this in this country where we essentially view politics through the prism of issues, issues and not people, not morality. And I'm not just talking about whether politicians are faithful to their wives or not, I'm, or we are faithful to our spouses or not. I'm talking about what ha- the the honesty, the integrity with which we interact with the world. And I think that we've got a big problem as a church in that arena, an increasing problem in that arena. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm thinking here that we also, you know, hire people to go do missions. I think, I mean, I think there's a lot of hire it out as opposed to actually <laughs> go and do it ourselves in ways that honor God and honor Christ. David French, as always, Thank you so very much. We look forward to talking with you throughout this upcoming year. Um, blessings uh, on you and Nancy and little Lila and her parents. Um, just just know that we're upholding you in prayer, and thank you for what you're doing every day. Appreciate it so much. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, friends, you can find David French at thedispatch.com. The first hour of uh, this morning's Get Together uh, is now over, but the second hour is jam-packed as well. Dr. Linda Mental and I are going to talk about actually making concrete changes in our lives in the year to come. We all have a list of things we'd like to have be different about ourselves. Um, So how are we actually going to bring that into reality? And then I have a conversation with Dr. Carl Truman. We're going to talk about the rise and triumph of the modern self, cultural amnesia, expressive individualism, and the road to sexual revolution, a book I think should be named How We Got Here. All right, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
Boy, oh boy, if you just caught only a little uh, segment or a little part of that last interview with Linda Randall, you're going to want to go back to the podcast at MyFaithRadio.com and catch that entire thing, including the fact that she really was William Paul. Uh, to, she said at first when we brought her, uh, just before coming on the air, she mm-hmm. thought, that's a little early for me to sing, but but she warmed up and then she just went for yeah, it to get a little acapella it. like that. It was mm-hmm. It was beautiful. It was fabulous. It was fabulous. <laughs> and I do want to reference uh, the book that she did talk about a little bit towards the end and certainly would love to, to get into even more fully, uh, maybe in a different interview, a different time. But that book that she talked about was called The Cab Driver's Daughter. It was about growing up uh, in her years in D.C. She talks about racism. She talks about racial divisions being healed and reconciled. She's one of the only African-Americans who's been a part of this Gaither ministry and, and music uh, organization. And she's really been a unique bridge there. So she has lots of great things to say that not only can can talk about the divisions that exist, but the but the more difficult reality of how do we begin to walk in healing in those divisions? How do we begin to walk in the fullness of those divisions? And you go to Amazon.com. Again, the book is titled the cab driver's daughter and uh, among the many things that we can celebrate during this COVID Christmas time is the idea that we really are grafted in to use the language of Romans that we are part of the new people of God that now exists because of the beautiful work of Jesus on the cross and the fact that he has conquered death in that tomb and so we are one big family of Jesus followers regardless of context and background regardless of skin color and age we all fit in that same beautiful kingdom of people who have said yes to following Jesus more to come we've got hour two coming up next starting with Linda Mintel here on Mornings Without Carmen I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for the day thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.